Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, welcome to all our first movers around the globe. TGIF, we're at the end of another long week. There's a Friday filled with more key data, positive signs we do seek. Strong earnings show big tech still got the technique. Then there's tonight's $1 billion lotto draw, your chance of winning. Astonishingly bleak. But you can sing away your sorrows with Beyonce's new album. Critics say she's at her peak. And speaking of peak, US stocks are on a streak. A higher Wall Street open on tap this Friday. Strong results from Apple and Amazon. The AA batteries of tech boosting sentiment, adding to a 1% rally across the board for the majors on Thursday. We are now, in fact, sitting near two-month highs and on track for a second week of gains. Investors shaking off U.S. recession fears, at least for now, soothed in part, perhaps, that the Fed will slow the rate hike pace if the economy slows too much further as well. Hmm. That said, Powell and company making it crystal clear this week that they're in inflation-fighting mode, and that's far from done. No mystery as to why either the central bank's preferred measure of U.S. inflation, the core PCE price index, as it's called, rising at 4.8 percent in June. And that remains near 40-year highs. Hot prices still on the front burner across the Atlantic as well. Eurozone inflation hitting a fresh record of 8.9 percent this month, well above expectations, of course. Prices highly elevated even when factoring out energy costs. The news is a little bit better, though, on the growth front for them. Euro's stocks rising as second quarter growth comes in faster than expected. But that report, of course, is backward looking and conditions have worsened, it's worsened since that data was collected. Germany, too, the manufacturing powerhouse of Europe, delivered zero growth. Its exports spluttering due in part to supply disruptions driven by the Ukraine crisis. And that's where we begin the show today. President Zelensky and ambassadors from the G7 nations met today at a port near the city of Odessa amid hopes that the first grain shipments could leave as early as today. Ukraine says it's awaiting UN confirmation of agreed shipping routes. On Thursday, the UN said it was still working on safe corridors. Nick Robertson joins us now from Odessa. Nick, good to have you with us. The infrastructure minister in Ukraine said that 17 ships stand ready they're ready to go to export that grain. We know they're waiting for the UN side. If we read between the lines, does that mean they're waiting for assurances from Russia that those ships can safely pass? Yeah, it was very interesting. I think the infrastructure minister today was being very diplomatic with his language, mm. given the nature of the very tense and hostile relationship between Ukraine and Russia at the moment. And really, I think perhaps in deference to the G7 diplomats who were accompanying him on the visit to Odessa, um, perhaps in deference to the sensitivities of the situation and the fact that the UN is, is the middleman and broker in this. The U.S. ambassador and British ambassador who I spoke to separately were, were unequivocal that this is 
is very clear. The ball at the moment is absolutely entirely in in Russia's court. Uh, the British ambassador told me that uh, both that Ukraine has put forward proposals on shipping routes uh, for to the UN, but Russia has put forward other proposals. But the United States and the UK both fully understand that that, that Ukraine is ready to go. So when I asked uh, the infrastructure minister. Um, how soon could this happen and how ready was Ukraine? This is what he told me. Many countries are talking about the different ways in which you can achieve insurance, UN ins humanitarian insurance or commercial insurance. I actually think we were just talking about this at the last port, that if you can get these first ships out, that's going to be quite confidence building. So actually the first step for all of us, for those commercially engaged, those of governments who are supporting the deal, is that we do what we can to get this going. Once we get this going and there's confidence that that route can be used, I think these issues can be resolved quite quickly. So that was that was actually the uh, British ambassador there, of course, uh, speaking to the issue of the concerns uh, that that are very alive in Ukraine at the moment, and particularly for the infrastructure minister and others around him, uh, that because you know, just where that press conference was held today, a few hundred meters away from there, it was just last weekend that Russia hit it with two big cruise missiles. The concern is that while these grain ships that are full can get out, the concern is that the perception that you, Odessa is such a, a, hot, a dangerous hotspot at the moment that the more international ships won't come in because they can't get insurance. What the British ambassador was talking about there was the notion that the British government is looking at working working with commercial companies to see how they can sort of help that insurance burden that might fall across uh, shipping companies and then be, you know, essentially render the value of Ukraine's grain um, lesser to the shippers and the farmers. And a shipper uh, just a couple of days ago here told me, look, right now um, the cost of insurance is about uh, is, is about 10% of the cost of the cargo. So 25 million cargo insurance is $2.5 million. Um, as he said, that's not viable for anyone at the moment. Well done for holding it together, Nick, even if uh, we don't seem to be able to get our act together behind the scenes here. Um, precisely the point that you and I discussed last week. It's OK, perhaps, providing safe routes, but if you can't get the insurance to protect people, never mind the precious grain, um, it's not viable at this stage. And perhaps, as, as the ambassador was saying there, time. Because if you can start to see these routes safely utilised, then perhaps the insurance costs will, will come down. Um, very quickly, because I know you were visiting a farm as well, and this is what it comes down to as well for these individual families, for these people that are running farms that are sitting on grain that they've not been able to sell. It's vital for them too that this works. Oh, absolutely. The farmer we went to had a, had a modest farm, but, but not insignificant. He employs 250 people. We saw a lot of them at work. Um, he managed to sell most of his last year's grain stock uh, before the war, and most of it is now out of the country. Um, normally by now, he would have sold his stock and pretty much have slots aboard cargo vessels, uh, knowing when he was going to move it out of his silos and, and warehouses. And, but he said, right now, I, I can't afford to sell it because the price is so low. Until that confidence comes in and those convoys of, of shipments get going, that's what it's going to take to lift the price of the grain up to a point where it's profitable for him to sell it. And he said, look, I sell little bits because I need to cover my overheads. But if 
I was to sell it all, it would be such a loss and effectively put me out of business. He said the best that I can hope for, if I can't get it out of the country and can't sell it, it is just to keep selling bits, which will mean I have to cut equipment, I have to cut staff, and I won't be able to plant so much next year. And he said, look, the reality of a scenario like that is it means the crops for next year will be less. So this year is a problem. But next year, if it doesn't get fixed today, now, in the coming weeks, then next year is going to be an even bigger problem because the fields won't even be planted, never mind having the grain available to ship but not being able to ship it. Yeah, the problem compounds. Fingers crossed this works. And thank you once again for managing some of the technical difficulties. Nick, great to have you with us. Thank you. Nick Robertson there. Now, one of the ways Vladimir Putin is beating Western sanctions is by plundering the resources of compliant nations. CNN's Nema El-Bagir and her team investigate Russia's involvement in Sudan's gold production and how it could be helping support Russia's war in Ukraine. Just take a listen. Deep in Sudan's gold country, miners toil in the searing heat barely surviving in what should be one of Africa's richest countries. Providing gold for a war a continent away. We investigate a force more powerful than Sudan's government controlling its gold. Subverting Sudan's destiny. Threatening me and our sources and thwarting democracy to evade sanctions in Russia's war on Ukraine. Russian manager's on his way, they say. We uncover the extent of Russia's grip on Sudan. And Emma's full report airs in the next hour, only on CNN. Don't miss it. The Eurozone economy grew at an unexpectedly rapid clip last quarter, even as inflation hits record highs. Although the EU's biggest economy, Germany, showed zero growth, that was offset by stronger-than-expected numbers from Italy, Spain and France. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, that's the good news. The bad news is multifold. It's backward-looking. Uh, Germany, of course, stagnated. It was before the European Central Bank started raising rates. And we've got a looming winter energy crisis, supply crisis. Um, Mm. Yeah, I was going to pour cold water on this very happy, nice little Friday story, but you did it all for me. Yeah. Yes. Some Frozen. great news for Spain, for Italy, for France. Much better than expected Q2 numbers. But you have to dig a little deeper on this one because you've got to consider that post Q1, we're actually looking at this post Omicron surge, services reopened, and that's what was so strong looking at these results. Also, of course, finally, a proper summer of tourism, and we've seen plenty of pent up demand playing out there. Nil growth for Germany, as you said. No surprise, of course, if you get, look at energy prices and the fact that this economy is so driven by very energy intensive industry and factories, which have also been hit by supply chain issues. I actually think the EU economic commissioner summed it up rather well in a tweet this morning. He said, good news, euro area economy outperforms expectations in Q2. Uncertainty remains high for the coming quarters. Need to maintain unity and be ready to respond to an evolving situation as necessary. And the coming quarters are definitely of concern, particularly with the threat of further reductions in gas from Russia. But also just looking at the economics, yesterday we had the, uh, the latest business and consumer confidence surveys. They were published. And listen, confidence in industry, services, consumer, retail, construction, 
they are all pointing very much down. And actually, it was interesting that Spain was one of the bright spots today in terms of GDP because that has the biggest drop in confidence overall. We've also had that miserable inflation reading out today. And economists I spoke to today say they still expect Europe to head into a recession this year. It's just now a matter of how deep a recession it will be. Julia. Yes. Got to get inflation under control. Bottom line. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Now, the AA batteries of tech, as we mentioned, Amazon and Apple higher pre-market thanks to strong consumer demand, even as other tech names stumble, citing slowing spending and rising prices. Both stocks higher before the opening bell after earnings came in above expectations. Paula Monica joins us now on this. Paul, let's talk about Apple first. They did beat estimates thanks to iPhone sales, though a little weakness on the Mac and the wearable sides. What was, was fascinating to me, though, was their not forecast, because we're not giving them, but their insights into the future, which with a couple of caveats looks pretty strong too. Yeah, Apple obviously cognizant of the many concerns plaguing uh, investors right now and in the global economy uh, due to inflation, rising interest rates and what have you. But Apple really had a solid quarter. They sounded upbeat even if they didn't give true guidance per se. And you talked about iPhone uh, sales. What strikes me as uh, you know, really strong about Apple still is that services side of their uh, business growing like gangbusters. So all of those subscriptions really bringing in a lot of money for Apple. Yes. And on Amazon, in order to get a sense of what's going on for the consumer, for Amazon Web Services, for the core retail business, you had to drive past that whopping right down that tied to to Rivian, of course, the electric truck maker. So um, once we've done that, what did we get, Paul? Yeah, Amazon, obviously, with that Rivian investment, that has been a bust so far. It's why the company overall had a loss. But if you gloss over that, strong numbers from the core retail business, the consumer at Amazon still seems to be spending in stark contrast to that warning we got from Walmart. And Amazon Web Services continues to mint money, the cloud unit, really strong revenue growth and profits. So that is really helping to boost Amazon. And I think that uh, investors recognize that, again, when you look at how poorly Meta did, and uh, you know, a company like Netflix didn't do all that great. You can't just lump all these mm. companies in together as the fangs or mangs now if Facebook is meta, uh, you know, because there are obviously different dynamics going on. Apple and Amazon are doing extremely well, even as meta struggles. Yeah, a clear separation, I think, in these results. I couldn't agree more with you. Very quickly, what did they both say about hiring? Because this is one of the other sort of noises that we're hearing from the tech sector is suspended hiring, less hiring less aggressive hiring. Yeah, we're not, these guys we're not seeing hiring freezes or cuts mm. just yet at these companies. But Amazon did suggest that they may slow the pace a little bit in light of all the macro concerns. And Apple CEO Tim Cook, I believe the word he used on the conference call was that the company is going to be more deliberate. So I think the days of go-go growth that anyone that wanted a job that had the qualifications could get one at these tech companies because it was all growth all the time. That's on pause for the foreseeable future as we try and figure out where the economy is heading. Yeah, strategic hiring. That's the key. Paula Monica, thank you. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. During a phone call on Thursday, Chinese President Xi Jinping had a blunt warning for his U.S. counterpart, Joe Biden. Quote, if you play with fire, you get burned. 
He said it, making clear his anger over Washington's relations with Taiwan, including a possible trip to the self-governing island by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. CNN's Will Ripley is in Taiwan with their reaction to the current tensions. Taiwan trains for a Chinese attack. Air raid sirens in Taipei. Fighter jets scramble. Helicopters hunt submarines. Destroyers open fire. China's refusal to publicly condemn Russia's war on Ukraine, adding urgency to the island's annual military drills, fueling fears of a cross-strait conflict. Taiwan tensions dominated at a more than two-hour call Thursday. President Joe Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping trading warnings on Taiwan. Chinese state media quoting Xi, those who play with fire will perish by it. The ominous warning. Amid growing speculation, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi may be planning a trip to Taiwan, a plan discouraged by Biden. The military thinks it's not a good idea right now. Pelosi won't talk about her travel plans for security reasons. It would be the highest level U.S. visit in 25 years. There could have been more dialogue between Taiwan and the Biden administration rather than have this confusing mixed signals presented out there openly in the public in a way that now China has noticed and will respond in some way. A U.S. aircraft carrier strike group is back in the South China Sea, citing routine operations ahead of Pelosi's possible visit. Who would be caught in the crossfire of a conflict between the U.S. and China? It would be Taiwan, which is right there next to China. Beijing, Beijing promises firm and resolute measures to safeguard national sovereignty. Chinese passports show Taiwan as a mainland province, even though it has its own military and government for more than seven decades. Taiwan is a country. Taiwan is our home. We are not home of anyone, not Chinese, not Americans. China considers U.S.-Taiwan diplomacy a red line. Beijing won't rule out using force to prevent the island's formal independence. We will show our uh, willing to defend ourselves. Defending against China's massive military would be a Herculean task. Taiwan is counting on friends like the U.S. to defend their democracy from what they call a growing threat. At least 15 people have died in catastrophic flooding in the U.S. state of Kentucky. With more rain on the way, the situation could worsen. On Thursday, the governor activated the National Guard to help with rescues and recovery and declared an emergency to speed up deployment of essential resources. French President Emmanuel Macron welcomed Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to the Lycée Palace with a handshake on Thursday. Macron is the latest Western leader to court Saudi leaders amid an energy crisis brought on by Russia's war in Ukraine. French officials say the two also touched on human rights in Saudi Arabia. And straight ahead, where the sun meets the solar panel. Solar car startup Lightyear unveils its offering. We've got the CEO. Plus, blockbuster benefits. Strong summer ticket sales for IMAX next. Welcome back to First Move. Another frantic Friday for global data and earnings. A little bit of a frisky Friday, too, perhaps. Some weakness for the Dow, but the bulls still on track to end the week and the month with a flourish. 
Stocks climbing, a wall of worry as U.S. growth slows and inflation rises. The Fed's preferred measure of inflation coming in hot once again in June. The latest U.S. inflation and GDP data raising the spectre of stagflation. But since it's Friday, let's focus on the positives. They include more strong earnings from corporate America, great results from Apple and Amazon, with both reporting positive consumer trends. MasterCard say it's seeing, quote, robust consumer spending too and new numbers out today show consumer spending rising over 1% in June. Also today, shares of Exxon and Chevron set to rally after reporting a fresh set of record profits. No surprise there. Great for shareholders, perhaps, but not such a good look as the higher cost of energy eats into consumer spending power. Economists looking for a glimmer of hope on inflation might want to pay attention to a new tweet from Elon Musk. He says things are looking a bit better from his perspective, saying, quote, inflation might be trending down, citing an easing of Tesla commodity prices. Interesting. To discuss this with us, Torsten Slock. He's the chief economist at Apollo Global Management. Torsten, fantastic to have you on the show. Your thoughts, please. Let's start with inflation. Where are we and how long before we start to see this trending down? Yeah, this is very important. I mean, in some ways, this is really simple. The Fed has an inflation target that inflation should be 2%. And the inflation data from the headline CPI at the moment is 9.1. So that means that when you have a number that's nine, that's supposed to be two, the Fed needs to do something. And that's why the Fed, of course, aggressively is raising interest rates. And the data that we got this morning also confirms this problem that inflation is just not coming down and it's not coming down fast enough. And in particular, not as fast as the Fed would like. So the bottom line to your question, Julia, is that the um, Yes, the consensus expects inflation to go down, partly because, as you just mentioned, because commodity prices are down, energy prices are down. You've also seen used car prices go down. You've actually also seen airline ticket prices go down a little bit in the last six, seven weeks. But all that is still not showing up in the data. So the bottom line is that we're still standing at the top of the mountain in terms of inflation, and we're waiting to get to the other side and get inflation to begin to come down. It should happen over the next six months, but it's just taking a little bit more long time than what the Fed would like to see and what the consensus has expected. You know, one of the things I love about you is how focused you are on individual patterns in data as well. And one of the things that we actually don't often talk about, but it's key, we talk about the challenges for people trying to travel and to get around, but the transportation costs, freight costs are coming down actually quite quickly. And and for me, that's interesting for two reasons. One is it simply that costs are coming down because supply chain kinks are easing out, or is it because there's less demand for goods and that suggests a slowing in the economy too? What do you make? of what we're seeing there pivotal really for two reasons yeah that's that's really important and i think both reasons are exactly the explanation for why transportation costs are going down if you look at what the price is of transporting a container from china to the u.s west coast at the peak last year the tri- price of transporting a 40-foot container was around twenty thousand dollars today that's around seven thousand dollars so we've seen a very dramatic decline in particular in cost of transportation by containers, but also transportation by truck, by train and by air have also started declining. And exactly as you're highlighting, the good news is that uh, a lot of the anecdotal evidence is pointing to that the kinks in the supply chain are getting better. We're also seeing the flow of semiconductors pick up and that's also creating more car production, which of course is also good for ultimately car prices coming lower. But it could also be, as you're saying, that there is a slowdown in demand 
And as a slowdown in demand, in particular in the goods side of the economy, remember goods make up one third of total consumption. The remaining two thirds is consumer spending in services. So the bottom line to your question is, I think both things that you're listing exactly are the reasons why we should expect inflation to come down, namely that we have seen some slowdown in aggregate demand in the economy and therefore slowing in consumer spending. But we're also seeing all the problems we had in the supply chain are really getting improved quite quickly. So that all speaks exactly for inflation to ultimately begin to come down. So we may stand at the moment at the peak in inflation in the data that we got this morning, both from the PCE side and also from the employment cost index, I mean, the wage side. Yeah, because this is key for me. How much of that is easing? How quickly is the economy really slowing? And what impact then does that have on prices come down? So I'm asking you different questions, but uh, they're all connected ultimately at the end. Um, we've had a, a, an interesting debate, I think, in the media for economists and beyond about whether it, we're in recession, whether the data means we're in recession, whether the idea of recession now is so politicised that we can't talk about it, whether it is or it isn't. What do you make of where the economy is overall? And, and do you think the idea of recession has been sort of overhyped, politicised, but also by the media, because it comes down to confidence too. We can talk ourselves into these things. That's correct. And I think that the data we also got this week, very importantly, also shows that we actually now have had two quarters of negative growth, which is the definition of a recession. But the challenge yes. is that if you look at this from a Fed perspective, <laughs> the Fed perspective would say that we should look at the dual mandate, which is inflation and full employment. And inflation at 9% is obviously not signaling that we're in a recession. And if you look at the employment numbers, what's interesting is that, as of course, next week, as we all know, we'll get the non-farm payroll data. And the consensus still expects the unemployment rate to remain essentially at the lowest level in 50 years, namely at 36 And also expects that the consensus expects that we'll get 250,000 jobs created in July. That doesn't sound like a recession. So there is certainly a very different debate when you just look at the simple GDP statistics relative to the Fed's dual mandate of inflation uh, has to be at 2% and is not, it's much higher. And the employment side of the Fed's dual mandate, namely we need to be full employment. And with our employment rate still at 3.6, it still simply does not feel like a recession What in terms of how we traditionally have thought about a dramatic slowdown in the economy. So I would say the market is still, and in particular equity markets, still have relatively elevated earnings growth for the next 12 months. So the S&P 500 is and consensus expectations are probably looking at this and saying, well, maybe there's a slowdown coming several quarters down the road. That might be. But this earnings season has not been bad. And therefore, equities are probably not at the moment, at least pricing in a recession because earnings, both last earnings season and this earnings season that we've just been through, are not really signaling that we're in a recession. So that's why this debate that you're highlighting is so critical that is there a slowdown coming and how soft will the landing be or how hard will the landing be? And the debate will continue both on the inflation side and on the recession side. And as, as, as you discussed so greatly on your show all the time, I mean, if we don't know if inflation is really going to come down and if we don't know if we have a recession, then there's not really much we know in the macroeconomic space. And therefore, of course, for markets, that is why everything is so uncertain at the moment. Yeah, but it's interesting what you say about the idea that actually equities, even at this stage, are not pricing in recession. Um, OK, so I'm going to ask you probably what is a dumb question, but this is how my mind works. If inflation weren't at 9.1% and you allowed that to be somewhere near target, but you held everything else that we're seeing the same, even in terms of the, the changes that we're seeing and the softening that we're seeing, would the Fed be cutting rates at this stage? Or would it I just think be... that would be 
Absolutely. They would be very, very different because the whole reason why the Fed uh, this week raised interest rates 0.75, I mean, 75 basis points, that's a very, very significant increase in interest rates by historical standards. The whole reason why they are so worried is because inflation is at 9%. So to your question, Julia, this is really important. If we had not had all these supply chain problems, if we not had all these issues with inflation at these high levels, then we would certainly have had a very different situation. And to your question, this is why the very important thing that everyone in markets needs to think about is why did inflation go up in the first place? And there was a San Francisco Fed working paper that said that only a third of the increase in inflation was because of demand and two thirds were because of supply and supply chain issues. So if only one third was because of very strong demand, say stimulus checks and unemployment benefits, bonuses, meaning all the things that were thrown at the economy in terms of fiscal stimulus, if that's only playing a role of a third of the increase in inflation, maybe all we need is time to Mm. even out all the problems, all the kinks on the supply chain side. And therefore, inflation could come down potentially faster to the 2% target. But that's why the debate continues about what is the source of how we got here? Why is inflation at 9%? And if it is demand that is playing a significant role, well, maybe then we need much more rate hikes from the Fed. If it's just supply chain, well, maybe we don't need much in terms of rate hikes because then all of these things will probably get sorted out on their own as the supply chain issues improve themselves literally as we speak at the moment. Yeah. I mean, just so my viewers understand, this is the key because you're hiking interest rates. And arguably you have because they were on a historical basis too low anyway to be able to to cut rates if you need to in a real slowdown. But um, if inflation demand isn't the cause of this, really, the ultimate cause of this inflation, then um, perhaps you should give it a bit more time. And into that, the Fed's giving us less clarity, not more. Brilliant. Torsten, we have to go. <laughs> I could keep you talking all show. Thanks so much for having Great me. Great to have you with us. Torsten Slot, the Chief Economist at Apollo Global Management there. OK, coming up here on First Move, it's solar powered. It's got sleek design, but does it have the speed? The CEO of Carmaker Lightyear will discuss next. Welcome back to First Move. Park your EV. Solar cars are revving up. It's actually a combination. Dutch startup Lightyear unveiling its first model called the Lightyear Zero. The company says solar panels across the hood and roof can charge the battery up to 70 kilometers or 43 miles of driving range a day. And no sun, no problem. Lightyear says you can plug it into any regular outlet to charge over 300 kilometers of range just overnight. It comes with a hefty price tag, though. Wait for it. More than $250,000. Joining us now, Lightyear CEO and co-founder Lex Hoofslut. Lex, we're going to have to talk about the price, but we'll come to it. Um, (laughs) What caught my attention on this, and I mentioned it in the introduction, was the idea of not having to charge if the conditions are right, even for several months. Um, Just start with the vision of the company, because this is key. Yeah, in the end, we believe that uh, we need to make the transition to electric cars easier. Easier not only for customers, uh, not having to, to find a charging point every every time they, they need one, uh, but also for governments, just uh, eliminating the hassle of putting charging points everywhere. So uh, ha- having a, by having a car that can get the energy directly from the sun rather than needing charging points means that uh, you can basically start driving electric cars anywhere and make it a lot easier for people and for government. Okay, so let's talk about this. Um, and you have to walk through the design, too, because it's not just about where the solar panels are. There's aerodynamics that are also key to, to the capabilities of the car. And then you can tell me what kind of drip feed the solar panels provide. 
in terms of um, yeah, battery please. power. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in the end, it's all about it's a mindset switch. So we have to go away from from very heavy, big electric cars and going to more and more. Uh, efficient lightweight electric cars which means that the energy you get from the sun can be used much more efficiently and therefore the trickle charging that the solar panel does throughout the day gives you this this 70 kilometers or 45 mile range um, and that tops up your battery every day so you park your car outside of your office and it will be charged again when you come back and that's how your your battery will be topped up every day and therefore you you'd go months without charging yeah, I was looking at this. If you live in Spain or Portugal and drive less than 22 miles a day, you can effectively not have to plug this thing in for, what, up to seven months. If you go to the Netherlands, perhaps, where there's slightly less sun, then it, it could be two months. And obviously, the, the, the range is, it is narrower. But, but this is the key. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, but it's not just about getting energy from the sun directly. It's also just providing a lot of battery range. So right. we, we provide... 390 miles of battery range. Um, so if you look at what customers are looking for, they're not looking for more acceleration at this point. It's, it's about the sixth or the seventh thing they're looking for. The first three things is range, charging, and cost. Uh, so if you work on those, we can get through this transition a lot quicker. Okay. So what you're saying is we're sacrificing in many ways speed and acceleration for, for range. And uh, it's sort of been described as sluggish. Naught to 110 seconds. Its max speed is 100 miles per hour. Um, the type of person that's going to buy a car for $250,000, I sort of feel perhaps wants to take care of the planet, but they also want a bit of speed. So you're going to have to explain <laughs> the, the cost yeah, exactly. benefit so, analysis here. So Light Year Zero, Light Year Zero really is the first car in its kind. So it's the first car you can, you can buy, basically can go seven months without charging and it's, uh, it's a technology demonstrator. It's to demonstrate what is possible with today's technology. And what is super exciting is that going forward for the next models that are going to be much more affordable, starting at 30,000 uh, euros, um, it means that so both the solar charging will improve as well as the acceleration. So this is just the start. And uh, I, we believe at Lightyear, and there's, there's a lot of people with us that believe this is the end game of electric cars. This is where we're heading uh, not just making electric cars more efficient, but also bringing in energy directly from the sun. Yeah. And, and to be clear, light year two, I believe, by 2025 on the market. And that's when you start going mainstream with this um, sort of far lower price point and more accessible to, um, to a mainstream customer. Um, how many of these yeah, guys, exactly. though, are you going to make? And what's your order book like? Yeah, so for the, the first car, we're only planning to make 250 cars uh, for okay. the first batch. So it means that this is a very exclusive car. The yeah. next model will be produced in the hundreds of thousands. Um, but it's important to know that this is not something that's going to be happening in the future, in the far future. So we're bringing the first cars to customers in a couple of months. Um, wow. And then the mass market car will be there in about two and a half to three years. Money. This is a cash burn business. Two hundred dollars at $250,000 brings in some money, but you're clearly spending it. How are you financing the company? So we've got some strong investors from both right. the Netherlands, Europe. Um, we just closed another investment round, and uh, that's, that's a very healthy, well, it's a good commitment from, from them in these periods as well, where uh, there's a financial downturn as well. So um, we're very confident that uh, the investors that we have on board and we're going to bring on board in the next year, are going to get us to the next model. Uh, in the end, it all takes just a very good product. 
to make sure that uh, uh, there will be investors out there that, won't, that are willing to invest in very good products. There you go. The flag's flying. You've, you've said it here. Come and talk to us again in November, please. I want to drive one and see what it's like. <laughs> we'll Let's speak to you later this Great. year. Done. You've said it now. Thanks. Great to chat to you. <laughs> this CEO of Lightyear there. So thank you. Okay, after Thanks. the break, if you're still feeling the need for speed, blockbusters like Top Gun boosted IMAX's revenue for the second quarter. I chat with the CEO about what the fantasy franchise is coming in the back half of the year to mean for the company. That's next. Welcome back to First Move, and I hope you have your favorite movie snacks ready because the summer blockbuster is back. For the first time in its history, IMAX delivered three straight global openings of over $25 million with Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, Top Gun Maverick, and Jurassic World Dominion. Movie Madness leading to strong growth for the company, with revenues rising to $74 million in the second quarter. And with highly anticipated titles like Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, coming in the second half of the year, IMAX is hoping moviegoers will keep flocking to the big screen. Investors will also be watching how reopenings in Asia impact the international box office too. Rich Gelfond, the CEO of IMAX, joins us now. Rich, always a pleasure. Is this the proof that for IMAX customers, um, they're coming back? For blockbusters, they are well and truly back. Yeah, there's no question, Julia, that customers are back. Um, For example, if you looked at our domestic box office for the first six months of the year, This year, they're only down 5% from 2019, which was the best year in the history of moviegoing. Um, Also, if you look at our market share on a global basis, it's up significantly from where it's been. And you look at the kind of movies. So, you know, when Marvel movies came back, people said, well, it's only Marvel. And then Top Gun came out and they said, well, older people are starting to come back. And then animated movies, Minions. Oh, well, animated movies are coming back. So it's hard for me to think of a class of movie that hasn't coming back. I mean, there's just no doubt the movies are back. Independence, though. I mean, I get your point, but you are mentioning genres that are well-known. They're big franchises. They may not be Marvel, but um, they've got some history and they've got big stars. I mean, that's fair, but um, you even look at um, other movies like Glass Weekend, Nope, Open, in North America, it opens in the rest of the world over the coming months, and it did about $45 million. IMAX did 12% of the domestic box office. You know, Elvis has done over $200 million. So I, I don't think, yes, there are blockbusters, and IMAX as a company benefits from blockbusters. That was the way it was constructed. But, I mean, Top Gun is a sequel but it's a sequel 37 years later. So you know, I hard- <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you know, I think most of the people went weren't born when at the time it came. <laughs> that, that's a good point. Well made. Um, China. Let's talk about that, because I remember having the conversation with you. It was uh, last quarter and we had, what, 65 percent, I think, of, of cinemas open. It has been a challenging time. And just I think the uncertainty of when cinemas are going to be open or lockdowns are going to take place. It, it must be tough to run a business there. Um, Majority now back open. How confident are you about the rest of the year? So about 91% mm. of our theater network is open now. Um, but it, it's a complicated equation, getting people back to the movies and in the habit on a regular basis. 
So this weekend, there's a, a movie that's tracking ex extremely well in China opening called Moon Man, um, the service that tracks potential box offices forecasting about $500 million for that uh, particular movie. But there needs to be a, a pattern of movies coming out and people have to be confident in the health situation. So while Julia, as you correctly pointed out, more theaters are open now, there hasn't been a lot of blockbuster content that's starting now. It can't be one off. It's gotta get people back in the habit, which has happened in the US and the rest of the world. And I think you need that same sequence in China. We've seen it before in both 20 and 21, when the pandemic went down and box office came back and China was the number one box office in the world. But during this kind of COVID break, lockdown in some cities right now, they've lost that sequencing. Mm -hmm. So I think we're on the cusp of that happening now. And that's what needs to happen to create that pattern of movie going. Is that the key for IMAX being back to profitability in the current quarter? Because it has been a long road and you've been sort of pulling back on the on the losses even in the in the past quarter. Is China going to be the key? And are you confident even enough at this stage, given everything else that's going on in the world, that, that you can make profits this year, uh, this quarter? I, the current I mean, we've quarter. been pos positive EBITDA and positive cash flow um, for about two years now, every single quarter. So it depends how you mention uh, profitability. The reason on a gap basis that we weren't, didn't have a positive EPS this year is because of non-cash kind of write-downs that had to do with tax valuation. I'm not, it'd be too boring to go into it, <laughs> but remnants of the pandemic and the tail end. But by conventional measures, as I said, like EBITDA and free cash flow, um, we've been making money for the last two years. I'm cheeky and combine it all. Um, talk to me about the fact that your tickets, as you always say, it's a quality experience, but they are at the premium end of, of, of cinema tickets for affordability at a time when people are facing in greater constraints. Are you concerned about the slowdown that we're seeing and what impact that might have wherever we look in the world, to be honest? And is there any sense that you'll go, look, we have these big expansion plans. Um, maybe we'll just take a little bit longer to think about them. Or are you still full, goes full speed ahead? Yeah, I mean, we're full speed ahead, depending on the prior question you just asked, how right. quickly China opens up and stays there. But in the rest of the world, as I said, I mean, box office is doing great. Market share is going up. Um, the movie business has traditionally been relatively recession resistant. In the last seven recessions, box office has gone up every year. And in 2008, 2009, the deepest recent recession, box office has gone up a lot. And the reason the movie business in general, but specifically IMAX, is really an affordable luxury. So if you need to cut back or you're worried about costs, you might not go to a, a Broadway show or you might not go on vacation or an expensive restaurant. But for the price of a movie ticket, you know where the movies can take you, whether it's the middle of Jurassic World or whether it's you know, flying on a fighter jet with Tom Cruise. It, it's a real escapist, great experience. And there's a lot of empirical data to show that neither inflation nor recession seems to have a big impact. Yes, for me, second half of the year, it's all about Avatar. I can't quite, I can't wait. 
Rich. Great yeah, I was going to ask you that, Julia. When you <laughs> mentioned the big movies, you left out Avatar. Of I, course, that's I know. the biggest movie of all time. And if you ask me the biggest I, opportunity this year, it's Avatar. Can't wait. Rich, great to chat to you. Rich Galfond, CEO of IMAX. Sir. Thank you. We're back Thanks. Great this. seeing you, Julia. Always. Welcome back to First Move. Italian motorcycle manufacturer Ducati accelerating through 2022 with record-breaking sales. Revenues for the first six months jumped 5% to more than $550 million. That's its best first-half results ever. CNN's Jonathan Hawkins spoke to their CEO. 19th of uh, July, uh, this July, was 10 years after uh, VW took over Ducati. And uh, I just made kind of some reflection on that, you know, because it's a 10 years kind of a period. Uh, and, uh, you know, 2021 has been the best ever year for, uh, for the company. Um, we sold almost 60,000 bikes, uh, uh, very rock solid financials. 2022, we have a lot of uh, really disruption, but we are doing good uh, disruption in the supply chain. It's very difficult to get the component. So we're fighting to get another rate over here. And actually, we are really seeing the benefit of these last 10 years of continuous investment. I think it's a, it's a, a very interesting combination now because it's a, this kind of uh, uh, very solid, also German uh, backup uh, and this forefront, very Italian, very passionate, uh, very uh, uh, with a lot of attention to design, beauty, and uh, and in the middle technology. So it's a nice mix. Yeah, the biggest challenge is kind of uh, that the whole uh, system. And which actually, you know, to assemble a motorcycle, you need uh, 1,500 different components. Eh? Uh, and then you send uh, plans to supplier. And there are long time plans, you know, like you, you see one year. And so you plan the supplier and you say, how many of these components you want next month? How many you want in three months? You want, you want in six months? And normally, in normal life, supplier organize themselves. Uh, they buy the machine, they prepare, they build the capacity, hire the people. They buy raw material and they do the job and then 15 days before you need a component, the component arrive at the gate. And then you put in warehouse and two days before you take from warehouse and you put on the assembly line and then assemble the motorcycle. Actually that has kind of exploded almost. So I would say 50% of the supplier in the last one and a half year, they are not anymore able to guarantee that actually they deliver on time. Queen Bee is back and better than ever. That song, Alien Superstar, is just one of the 16 tracks on Beyoncé's long-awaited seventh studio album, Renaissance. The project, infused with R&B, dance and house music, honors industry trailblazers like Donna Summer, whose I Feel Love is sampled on the song Summer Renaissance. The album was leaked earlier this week after copies were reportedly sold early in Europe. But one thing about the Beehive, they're going to stick by their queen. Beyonce addressed the leak in a handwritten letter on Twitter and thanked her fans for waiting for the proper release time to celebrate and enjoy together. And that's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. We'll see you on Monday. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.